The hardest clinical trials are for rare diseases. There are few patients. It's hard to find them. And when you find them, you have to get them to hospitals that may be far away. There may be only a few hundred patients scattered across the globe. Think how hard those trials are in COVID-19. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'll be joined today by Zizi Amaterbebe. She's the global clinical lead for rare diseases here at Cineos Health. Her work has been in recruiting patients and designing clinical trials for rare diseases, which are now much more challenging with COVID-19. Rare disease clinical trials in COVID-19, next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Zizi Amaterbebe, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you. I know you work in our clinical trial groups, and I know that you're a global lead. Is it rare disease development? Yes, rare disease development. Mm -hmm. So rare diseases. Rare diseases are with less than 250,000 patients in the U.S. How is that different from just any drug development pathway? I know that it's fewer patients, so you do have to know where the patients are, and getting them is challenging. How is it in general? How is it different that we're talking about a rare disease versus anything else? I think with rare disease, you kind of alluded to it. The biggest challenge with rare disease is the fact that they are rare. So there are very few patients relatively compared to a non-rare disease. And these patients could be geographically dispersed, for example. You could be talking about some indications that are what are considered ultra-rare. And then you're probably looking at maybe 100 patients within the entire group. So the challenge is trying to find all these patients that have that particular indication and getting the treatment to them. Added to that is the fact that you're also going to have sites that perhaps maybe don't have as much experience treating these kinds of patients. So that's also very complex. With the rare disease, one of the big challenges also is that many rare diseases, they present in a very heterogeneous way. In other words, they might present differently in different types of patients. So you could have one patient that has a rare disease, but the manifestation looks different in that patient. So it makes it very difficult also for the physicians and the sites to be able to properly sometimes assess and treat because there is no paradigm for it. So you can imagine the level of complexity that introduces into drug development. One of the plus sides that I've understood for rare diseases, at least in terms of treating the patients or accessing them, is that they tend to go to centers of excellence. They tend to aggregate to certain places. Am I understanding that right, or is that not so much the case when you talk about the rare diseases? I think there's some validity to that. So what tends to happen is when patients are diagnosed with a rare disease, you know, it's a very scary thought. They, they're told it's rare. So they tend to look for, you know, what are the areas, what groups are treating these patients, for example, so what they tend to actually do is gravitate more towards patient advocacy groups because many times the patient advocacy groups have a collection of patients that have this indication and they have many, many resources available for them. So if there's a patient advocacy group for that rare disease, they tend to usually go there first. And then the patient advocacy group usually has, like I mentioned, a variety of resources so they know probably the sites or the center of excellence that deal with that particular radiation to point the patients to. So yes, when they're usually diagnosed, they're going to the patient advocacy groups usually first, and then the patient advocacy groups might be connecting them with various sites or different bodies that they might find helpful. If you're trying to get these patients in, when trying to find at least some rare diseases, we found that other competing clinical trials not the standard of care, but clinical trials 
were the main competitor to the drug at times. And so trying to figure out how many you could get into a trial required figuring out how many people were in clinical trials. Is competition for these patients fierce or am I just biased by the experience <laughs> that I had with some rare diseases that we couldn't enroll the patients, at least the client couldn't enroll the patients. They weren't working with us as a CRO, but just as an experience because there were only 100 patients prevalence. And this was an incidence-based thing, so it might have been nine in the entire United States. There are some rare diseases that are less rare than others. Let me put it that way. So in other words, there are some rare diseases where there is a lot of competition, especially some of the more commonly known rare diseases. You think of things like cystic fibrosis, for example, ALS, even Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So some of these rare diseases are quite popular, so to speak. So there are a number of studies already ongoing in that area. So competition is very critical. So that's why we say to sponsors as they start to plan their drug development for their particular rare disease asset is that they really need to understand what the landscape looks like. You know, it's not enough now in today's market just to come with an asset that will be a meat to drug. What is different about the kind of asset that you're trying to bring in? Have you compared it to the standard of care? How does it compare with some of the other assets that are in development in clinical trials? Because, yes, you're right, there's going to be competition for those trials. Why should a patient, for example, use your trial drug versus another one? These are kinds of questions that need to be done early. The pre-planning is very critical. And also looking at the study itself, is this a study that patients want to do? Is this study patient-friendly? Is it very burdensome that the study involves children, for example? So these are all considerations in looking at whether or not a study will enroll properly or whether or not it will be impacted by uh, competitive wins in a trial. And tacked on the end of the competitive threats I've seen from other trials, compassionate use is also one where, yeah, I'm going to name an example without naming the companies. I was working for a large company that had products that would be for a rare disease, and they were having trouble enrolling because the competitor had not been approved, but had a compassionate use program, so was sucking up all the patients. Do you see this, these kinds of, um, I don't want to say games and gamesmanship, but competitive threats? You know, frankly, I think those are few and far between. Obviously, each companies looking to position, again, you know, it depends on the indication that you are talking about. If it's a highly, highly, highly competitive indication, in other words, where there are maybe lots of therapies, then it's plausible that companies might want to employ such tactics. But again, this is a very close-knit community of patients, caregivers, and just people within the ecosystem. So usually the sponsors are really trying to do their level best to bring out the drugs in a timely fashion and not play such competitive games. But it's not implausible that that happens or can happen. I know that your role in many cases as the global lead for this is to make sure that these trials enroll and enroll quickly, or at least on time. How do you do that? There are a number of ways that you can do that. It starts with pre-planning. You have to kind of start with the end in mind. You already know that these are very difficult patients to recruit. So it really starts with what we call a really good feasibility. Again, assessing the landscape, looking at the trials, looking at the protocol, for example, looking at the standard of care, how it compares, making sure that the protocol is pretty well optimized. And once you've got a fairly good optimized protocol, 
Then you launch into, with feasibility, identifying sites that have performed these kinds of studies before and making sure that the sites are able to roll and they're interested in actually doing the studies. Besides getting sites engaged, you also want to get patients engaged. At the top of our conversation, we talked about the fact that because rare diseases are generally rare, these patients are dispersed, it might mean putting together actions or items that will make it easier, for example, for patients to be able to get to the site. So that might mean providing like travel and concierge services for patients so that they can better enroll in these kinds of studies, helping them with travel, helping not just the patients, but their children, sometimes providing care for them to have their pets cared for while aborted while they are going out to study. So there's a whole lot of things that we can do. And in today's age, with a lot of digital technologies and digital media, there's a lot of reminders that can be provided to patients to remind them about the studies that are ongoing so that they can keep that top of mind and stay engaged with the study and increasing enrollment. So we talk about travel, we talk about geographically dispersed patients, and we talk about it being sometimes difficult to find the message to them and bring them in. seems more difficult with COVID-19. Yes. COVID-19 has thrown a monkey wrench into many things. I think the industry in general is grappling with COVID. It's nothing that anyone foresaw coming, definitely not at this time. But I think what COVID-19 has added the complexity to added is, first of all, we're already dealing with very few patients. <laughs> we're already dealing with sometimes sites that we see are need, maybe don't have as much experience and we need hand-holding. So now the patients are having difficulty getting to the sites because some of them are not open or open in a very limited fashion. And then in terms of when we're dealing with sites that are maybe hospital sites, for example, Many of these sites, just because of the impact that COVID is having on the hospital system, are really diverting a lot of their resources to care for these COVID-19 patients. So it's very difficult for them right now to think of taking on new studies, especially if the studies require some sort of hospitalization, for example, or care in the hospital. The other thing is, with a lot of rare disease studies where talking of a, a lot of innovative and newer type of therapies like cell and gene therapies, for example. And those require extended hospital visits to prepare for or to receive treatment. Again, with the hospitals being really preoccupied and engaged right now in dealing with COVID, that makes it very challenging for those types of rare diseases that involve uh, especially cell or gene therapies. I know that at least initially and certainly in areas that are more hot spots for COVID-19, the hospitals are fully engaged with that. In other areas, not so much. They're furloughing doctors. Is this an opportunity to open up sites that would otherwise be more difficult in the past? And maybe that's just not the reality on the ground. Maybe the reality on the ground is it is difficult and you just can't get interest because of the focus. But others, I would think, I would hope that they would be looking for additional chances to have patients and treat patients because they're not treating patients. So there is a two-part problem, and you know, the way you mentioned it, so yeah, maybe there might be some solutions, but the challenge now is in many places, a lot of states, a lot of government agencies are restricting movement of people. So I think even patients and just people generally hesitate to move around in 
things that they may think are not as needed. Is a clinical trial not as needed? Yes, it is needed, but they might be hesitant right now to go out besides just key things in many areas. But I think as we start to see the restrictions lifted just generally, not just in one place, because restrictions could be lifted in, say, a particular locale, for example, and this is a prime example for rare disease. Restrictions might be lifted, say, in Georgia, where I'm right now, but then the physician or the site that's doing the study, the nearest location for that particular study is maybe in New York, right? So the patient can get to New York because, again, with rare diseases, patients are dispersed and the sites are dispersed. So they might have that situation where their area is free and ready to move around. Where the site is located is still a hotspot, so they can't get to it. So those are the kinds of issues that we have to grapple with in this new environment. Are you seeing appetite to changing protocol designs to be flexible for something like this? In the times that I've worked alongside those from clinical, a frustration I hear a lot for those that design clinical trials is that you're not always asked on to help design the clinical trial. You're just handed a protocol and expected to execute on it. And there's a lot of resistance potentially to doing those kind of adaptive designs that we might do or having some flexibility. Has that changed? Absolutely. We talked in the beginning about creating a roadmap and helping you get from point A to point B. And this is really critical, more so even now, which is making sure that your study design is robust, is more patient-friendly, so to speak. And one of the things that we're seeing, even in non-rare studies right now, is the fact that people are looking and saying, okay, how can, you know, in this virtual environment right now, in this highly remote environment, how can we actually bring this study to the patient? as opposed to bringing the patient to the study. Um, so you're seeing a lot of things being incorporated. One, of course, have a good design and make sure that the studies, again, like I say, patient-friendly, but incorporate elements like telemedicine, for example. Can the patient see the physician via the phone? You know, a lot of studies are incorporating that, for example, having the drugs shipped directly to the patient as opposed to having the patient go get the drug from a pharmacy or get the drug from a hospital or another center. Can you do that? Those kinds of things, I think, are impacting. And you're also seeing on the clinical side an increase in what we call remote monitoring, where clinical team is able to look from a remote location at the site and see what the issues are and try to address and solve and monitor the site just remotely. So we're seeing a lot of changes already in how clinical trials are being done and a lot of, I want to say, acceleration of new technologies and just really incorporating ways to do things more remotely, which will really bode well for rare disease studies because of the dispersion of patients and sites. It strikes me that rare disease trials are the places where you can afford often because we're talking maybe 30 patients sometimes, 300 patients if it's a really big trial, for rare disease might be 10. We can afford to work out or go after what might be extraordinary new measures that larger trials simply don't even start to start to think about. It's as though this is the test bed for how trials might be done more generally in times of pandemic. Yeah, I think in fairness to those involved in rare disease development, I think this is something that we have generally pushed for. And I always look at 
hopefully I'm not being biased because I love working in this space and I've been doing so for a while, but I've always thought that rare disease is generally a really good model on streamlining studies in general and really making them more virtual because many times in rare disease studies, we're talking about virtual trials and how to make these trials more efficient and how to actually bring the study to the patient as opposed to taking the patient to the study. So I think rare disease leads the way in this area and can lead the way, especially in the pandemic and post-pandemic. So it's a good development because it's now more broad for non-rare diseases. Some of these techniques and ideas that we have really been talking about generally, especially in terms of making a lot of aspects of the studies more remote will be more readily accepted now. I have noticed that trials at times are designed for regulators, but not for commercial success. How do you advise clients on making their trials actually point towards something a physician would actually want to prescribe, a patient would actually want to take, and a payer would actually pay for? in orphan diseases. That's a great point that you bring up. There are actually studies that have shown that of the drugs that make it to market, probably about half of them don't reach their sales expectations. So many times what you have is a sponsor group that has this great technology, usually maybe a really good platform technology, and I'm going to go from point A, point B to point C, and we're going to get this drugs to market. But there are very many aspects to consider. You have to consider your drug from obviously the patient's perspective you want. You want a drug that's going to be clinically significant, but also meets the patient's needs. You also have to consider that drug from a payer perspective, which many times I think is often missing. You know, just because the drug is a good drug or the drug treats doesn't mean that the payers want to pay for it. The payers want to see value. They want to see benefit over existing therapies, especially if that particular drug is not first to market. So we ask or we suggest the, the clients that they really need to develop a roadmap and understand, first of all, what are the unmet needs in this market and how are they evaluating that particular asset against the standard of care, especially looking at the payer's perspective and then understanding how they will actually design that study so that it will generate a drug approval for them. Very critical. And knowing upfront what they think the market potential is going to be from a commercial point of view. These are things that need to be done very, very early, as early as possible, so that the sponsors can make a quick go or no-go decision and be able to prioritize how they want to spend their time or their money in going forward. And also sponsors have to decide which countries do they want to go into. These critical things have to be really considered early on because it's going to also affect various things like the regulatory pathways, for example, that they need to follow or to adopt as they bring this drug into market. I think those that maybe haven't done it before would think, I just get a drug approved and then figure these things out. But if you don't have the right endpoints that a payer cares about, or if you don't have the endpoints that a patient actually cares about, that just get you approved, that doesn't matter. And it doesn't get paid for, it doesn't get used. And if a physician doesn't care about your endpoints, it doesn't get prescribed. And I think the other thing that I've seen is that from the payer perspective, if you have clinical trial inclusion and exclusion criteria, that's 
fantastic for a regulatory endpoint. You can get a very clean patient segment. When you have inclusion and exclusion criteria, you've just handed payers a weapon. They can use that weapon against us to keep patients from accessing drug or getting it reimbursed. So you have to be very careful about that. I assume that that's part of the process also is to evaluate how a payer might react to the inclusion-exclusion criteria for the clinical trials. Absolutely. In fact, we even say it's often helpful early on to consider the regulatory perspective. The reason I bring regulatory up even in this early stage is that the FDA and many regulatory bodies are now more patient-friendly. They really want to see these drugs come into market. So very early on, you can start to discuss with them things like the inclusion, exclusion criteria, and you discuss with your KOLs and really do some really good groundwork on inclusion, exclusion criteria. We talked about competition, for example. Is your criteria too narrow? Is your criteria too broad? That's going to impact you as you start to do this particular type of studies, for example. And then also, you want to get guidance from a regulatory perspective as you look at this drug. You want to get guidance from the payer perspective. So it's kind of trying to marry the regulatory aspect, the payer aspect, and the patient aspect at the same time, making sure that you have a drug that ticks the boxes on all fronts. That way, you know you're going to have something that has a higher chance of succeeding in the marketplace because you've really considered those key building elements, which is regulatory, payer, and then patient perspective in designing your clinical development program. Right at the beginning, you mentioned the patient advocacy groups. I know in the commercial work I've done that when you get in the market, the patient advocates can make or break your drug. And they also, I understand, can make or break trials. How has patient advocacy changed or has it changed in COVID-19? I think the patient advocacy group have changed because they've kind of become stronger as the years have gone on. A couple of years ago, the FDA outlined what they call the 21st Century Cures Act. And in that act, they recommended that sponsors reflect the voice of the patient in clinical development. And the FDA itself and various regulatory agencies, they want to hear from the patients. They want to understand the patient experience. And sponsors now are very, very sensitive to really making sure that they incorporate the patient voice. And we had a situation a couple of years ago where the FDA was not going to approve a rare disease drug, but the patient advocates were so strong and they came in and really provided input and also showed that this drug actually benefited their patients. They could see how the quality of life had improved as a result of using this drug. This was experiential or first-hand experience. So as a result, that drug was really approved and came into the market strongly due to the push from the patient advocacy group. So the patient advocacy groups are very powerful. They're very engaged. Patients are very engaged. I mean, the FDA now has a patient-focused drug development. They have listening sessions for patients, and usually the patients are there with their advocacy groups. So they're a really, really powerful group. We always recommend when we are advising sponsors really early on as we start the drug development process for their ready assets to find out have they started engaging the patient advocacy group. The groups also have access to patients as well. So the sponsors are also able to get feedback from patients 
Um, some of them have access to patient registries, natural history registries, which sometimes they to make available so that the sponsors themselves have a better understanding of how this illness occurs with these types of patients. Patient advocates are indeed very important, and of course, patients at the end of the day are whom we serve. Zizi and Matobebe, thanks so much for joining me on the Cineos Health Podcast. Oh, thank you so much, my pleasure. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life. Music